Hello, and welcome back to Lost in Citations, our regular podcast where we speak to the producers of interesting content and see if we can learn a little bit more about their background. Today is another one of our Man on the Street podcasts. You find me here in the plaza, the campus plaza Kyoto, for the JALT listening SIG. It's a beautiful autumn day, uh, and I hope to be able to speak to a few people, uh, a few people who you may have heard from in the past and a few new guests as well. Uh, if you like these kinds of podcasts, then uh, you'll be happy to know that myself and Jonathan have been accepted to several upcoming conferences in various parts of Asia, uh, where we will attempt to connect with people and see if we can uh, vary the content and put you in touch with people who you're going to be meeting in conferences uh, when you're able to attend. So without further ado, let's get going. Okay, so you find us here with uh, Stuart McLean, who is a previous interviewee of uh, the podcast um, and my first interviewee of the day. So could you tell us a little bit about the presentation you're going to be giving today? Oh, I, I just finished it now. Okay. Um, we were looking at learners' ability to comprehend derivational forms mm -hmm. when listening. Uh, there's No one's looked at learners' ability to comprehend derivational forms when listening before. Mm -hmm. There's been quite a lot of research on it in reading. It's maybe a bit of a hot topic at the moment. Mm. Uh, if you look at the reading research, I would argue that it argues that learners' ability to comprehend derivational forms is rather limited. Mm. Let's say about, of the participants, they comprehended about 60 to 70% of the derivational forms they presented with. But the most importantly, other research would say that, um, generally, a learner's written receptive or read vocabulary knowledge is significantly higher than their oral or heard vocabulary knowledge. Therefore, if the reading research suggests that learners can't comprehend derivational forms or learners have limited ability to comprehend derivational forms when reading, you'd expect their ability to comprehend derivational forms when listening, partly because it's an online skill, also to be lower. Um, therefore, we investigated that and maybe unfortunately or fortunately for the research questions, learners' ability to comprehend derivational forms when listening is limited. Mm. So basically we need to help teachers, well, we need to help students focus on derivational forms or um, affixes within derivational forms mm. when listening. And the, one of the things that I like about SIG meetings is that they tend to recommend kind of practical solutions to these kind of things. I always uh, term it as like the Monday morning solution. You can come to, well, Monday morning idea, you can come to a presentation at the end of it, the next day, uh, you might be able to institute something in your class that would improve the situation. So do you have any recommendations of um, uh, activities that could be introduced into receptive classes to improve this situation? Um, the main goal of, our, of the presentation or the research is just to highlight the issue mm. so that there may be people thinking about Monday morning. Um, We've long used those um, part of speech tables, so you might give the student the word use and mm. we want them to produce the noun or the uh, adverb, etc. Now if a student does it by themselves, of course there's no speaking or listening, they're, they're writing, they're still thinking about form, but 
as I said before, the research suggests that they're better at reading than listening. So when I get my students to do it, they all have the ta- they all have that kind of table and a piece of paper each, but they have to check with each other mm. before writing. Import- importantly, before they write anything, they need to check with each other. So then they're practicing pronouncing it, mm. they're practic- practicing hearing it, and also they're practicing spelling it mm. or spelling the derivational form. So is uh, this something that um, you recommend was introduced in I don't know in, in either syllabi or in textbooks? This kind of chart that is easily accessible by students. Um, you, you said you you provide it to your students. I, is is so it in a textbook or is it? I know it's, a, it's something I just make myself. But right. it's a really simple table. You just go to Excel. I know you want five columns, maybe fifteen rows. You put in some often verbs or adjectives that have a number of, that can be presented in a number, number of different parts of speech. And rather than it being a single or a private task, it's a group task. Mm. In truth, if, if university syllabi considered affixes, mm. that'd be a huge step forwards regarding that. Mm. Of course, we, we often only have 15 weeks, so we have to prioritize what we want to do. but. Of course, if, if our learners had a good command of affixes, mm. every time they learned one new base word form, they'd probably be learning three, four affixes at the same right, time, right. if they have a good command of the affixes. Yeah. Okay. Well, I, I wish you uh, good luck in your research and in your classes, and thank you very much for speaking to us today. And thank you very much for making this and promoting the conference. Thank you very much. Thank you. Right, so we're speaking now with uh, Chris Cooper from Rikyo University, and I believe your research is something connected to YouTube videos? Yeah, yeah. Um, so I'm presenting today about using uh, news videos from YouTube with, uh, from various countries with uh, independent learners, like probably Sefa B1 uh, and above. Um, yeah, like I just, uh, I'm teaching a news class, and there's so many like, short videos on YouTube. And I thought it would be a good idea to and, uh, find videos from different countries in English so my learners can be um, exposed to various varieties of English. And yeah. Well, my, uh, my, my research is generally in the area of English variety, mm-hmm. so I would be interested in knowing which countries you selected. Yeah, well, it's 12 countries, um, and, and I tried to well, represent as much of the world as I could, so in, um, like got like Japan, Korea, China, Singapore, maybe in Asia, in the Middle East, like Israel and Qatar, is mm. Al Jazeera, in, um, uh, Europe, like DW News from Germany, BBC News from UK, I've got ABC News in America and CBC News in Canada. I think that's most of them. And then Africa was more difficult. There was um, a channel called Africa News, which is good, but uh, it doesn't have captions, um, which I think help learners like uh, understand the video. So I, I, the one I chose was TBC News, which is based in Nigeria, which is good, but uh, maybe maybe mainly it's like local news, whereas like most channels do cover some kind of international. And do you require students to listen to it, or do you kind of provide it to them as a resource and they choose what they listen to? Yeah, pretty much. Yeah. Well, I'd say like you can choose from these channels. Uh, actually, they can choose some other channels as well, but I chose these ones because they generally have uh, L2 captions mm. and short videos. Um, yeah, and 
Then in class, I will choose some videos and try to represent them all. But I think like one interesting thing is you can choose like a news topic, and then see if it is if it's reported differently in different countries. There was, I mean, I could give an example maybe about that. Like the pandemic, there was like lockdown in Shanghai, I think. Um, and there's like two videos on the same day. One was from Wyon uh, News in India, uh, and actually most news outlets just reported on the lockdown being so severe, and they showed videos of people screaming from the um, like tower blocks in Shanghai. But on the same day, CGTN in China, which is partly uh, funded by the well, it's like the public broadcast in, in China. Uh, they had a much more positive spin, like we're coming out of the lockdown, that kind of thing. So, um, yes, I mean, I think it's interesting that I'm trying to encourage my students to watch different accounts and then they decide which to believe. But, and then, yeah, CGTN is a public broadcaster, but also like the BBC in the UK is a, is a public broadcaster. And a lot of the channels I chose are, it's, Al Jazeera is kind of funded by the Qatari government, I think. Some of them are independent, but um, Arirang News in Korea, I think, is. Do you do you do you bring that up with the students? Do you point out these yeah. uh, possible biases? Yeah, I do, and um, actually, YouTube is quite good. It brings it if it is uh, like a public broadcaster. Usually, you get like a, a line on the bottom, and it links to Wikipedia. But yeah, that's something we discuss in class. And and I when I taught when I've taught these news classes before, mainly with reading, I would. Mainly go with like a left-wing, right-wing bias mm -hmm. on American, British websites, but um, I don't know. I just think maybe this is an interesting, slightly different way of looking at uh, news bias. Um, and we're always telling our students that English is the global language, right? Uh, <laughs> you can use it to communicate with people from different countries. So maybe this is, you know. Hmm. provides some kind of model from different countries. I don't know. Well, it certainly provides some context for how English is yeah, in that way. Yeah. So, well, thank you very much for your time today, Chris, and good luck with your presentation. Yeah, thank you. Thanks. All right, so I'm speaking today with uh, Mark Jones Hello. from uh, Toyo University, and uh, we're going to talk about the presentation that you've just done yep. on the topic of world Englishes. So uh, could you give us a bit more information about it? Yeah, so the way I see it, um, our uh, students are not being really well equipped for uh, being able to listen to um, global Englishes because um, mainly because they have a massive uh, lack of exposure. So basically, as an overview, um, our learners in you know a globalized world, they need to be able to listen to not just so-called native uh, English varieties, mm. uh, but also more um, global, you know, colonial uh, varieties. So, um, from the uh, um, and some of these varieties, um, people are using them as a first language. So, for example, in places like Ghana and Nigeria, we've got people using English as uh, their dominant language, but mm. people are still making assumptions that this is not their so-called native language and right. things like that. And they're, they're never present in uh, English language learning materials. Mm. So we need to work on this. And I think um, basically if we're using global Englishes as input, it doesn't make uh, a real difference in uh, phonology acquisition. I think as long as people are listening to English, they can then get access to a wider 
range of speakers and they've got a bigger kind of acceptability spectrum mm. in and what they hear um, so they can decode it as like the more familiar with you you are with um, other accents mm. the easier it becomes to understand speakers with that accent and I think the same holds true with global varieties rather than just you know for example British uh, ac- uh, British accent varieties and American accent varieties mm. and so on well in terms of acceptability um, have you received any feedback from your students about what they think about the materials that you're using class and uh, the different varieties they're hearing? So yes, in the study that I did, I took in uh, qualitative um, kind of assessments from students about how, how difficult it was to listen to those varieties. And some of them said, yeah, it was quite difficult to hear mm-hmm. um, some of those uh, varieties like Nigerian Englishes and Indian Englishes. But they also said it was difficult to understand British English mm. and American English. And, mm. you know, American English is kind of the standard in materials here in Japan mm, in mm, like mm. school textbooks so um, it's not necessarily the case that um, f- this so-called familiarity with graded languages is helping mm. they need um, access to authentic Englishes and global Englishes are still very authentic but they're just massively absent from the language learning landscape. Well I always find that it's the it the expectation which causes problems with students, particularly Japanese students. As you say, they don't get a lot of input from non-American materials. They don't get a lot of input at all, really. Um, But it's the expectation when they get into a conversation with someone from, as you say, any of these places. It's going to be in English more likely. It's a foreign language interaction. But it's very possible that they've never heard that variety. So becoming more... uh, uh, conversant in these varieties. So what are your plans for the future? Where, what have, has your study recommended to you that you should do more of, perhaps? Um, I think we just need to include more varieties, but we need, you can't just choose those varieties willy-nilly. So, you know, who are your uh, students most likely to interact with? Mm. Um, but you can... Um, create a, a, a method you know it's basically using the same methods we use with those status quo Englishes focusing on what the words are and getting word mm. identification in there and aspects of uh, speech like supra segmental phonology um, are they using connected speech are there certain habits of rising and falling and so on to help aid um, comprehension and we can still do that with other global Englishes and if we can point those out to students we can provide them with strategies so they can do more research themselves in the future Mm. after they leave our uh, courses of study Mm. and then you know gain uh, great proficiency on their own to like learn how to deal with speakers from new communities that they might end up dealing with. Well we say it's the 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 value of a good curriculum is always if the students can use it at the time that's most convenient for them. Absolutely. So not in a test necessarily, but as you say, when they go out and they're doing their own research, when they're doing their job in the future, the people that they're likely to use English with are not likely to be using American English. Okay. So if we can prepare them for that reality, I think we're doing a good job. I mean, uh, there is an argument to be made, what is American English anyway? And so <laughs> certainly there's going to be a lot of American influence on many of the world Englishes because a lot of the media that people are learning English through as they're developing their language skills comes from Hollywood or Netflix and so on and it's the media that informs uh, how we're speaking and how we're listening Um, and so is a Belgian speaker more likely to use British English or American English 
or possibly it's aspects of both and also aspects of their f uh, first language, whether that be French or uh, mm. Flemish Dutch. So it totally depends on the speech community and, you know, knowledge is power in that case, I think. Well, thank you very much for your time today, Mark. And uh, we've connected here at the uh, conference. We've also connected online. So I hope we'll have a chance to speak about this again in the future. Yeah, thanks very much for interviewing me, Chris. Okay, so uh, we're speaking now with uh, Thomas uh, Amenrud, who is the membership chair of the Jalt Listening Sig. Oh, no, 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 the Jalt Kyoto chapter. Oh, uh, Jalt Kyoto chapter, yes. And he's uh, been telling me, we, we're, I'm catching him just kind of before lunch, but you've been here since 8 o'clock this morning eight, setting up. No, no, 8.45ish is when I got here. But it, I'm guessing it's quite a stressful day for you. Yeah, not really. I mean, I've been doing this for a membership. I've been a Kyoto chapter uh, officer for 10 years. Mm. So it's kind of old hat, you know. Mm. Every time we set up an event, it's always, you know, the same sort of, you know, you have to make sure you've got, you know, who's doing what, which rooms we're in. It helps we're in uh, two rooms uh, on the same floor. Oftentimes mm. when we use this mm. building, we're on different floors. So mm -hmm. that helps things out. And, um, it also helps that the listening SIG is very well organized. Mm. Nahin, the chair, is she's uh, really done a great job at getting uh, the event over um, organization in terms of like who's speaking when at what time uh, that sorted. But the specifics of like, for example, making sure the projectors are working, make sure there's HDMI or VGA connectors uh, available, uh, just dealing with a, a, a listening cord mm. over in that room. We had someone who wanted to play audio and. Um, no one can get it working. I, I, I remembered, oh, yeah, don't they have an audio jack here? And sure enough, it was there. Um, this is our first live uh, in-person event uh, since January 2020. Mm. So there's a bit of a, of a uh, you know, kind of a, I wouldn't say a learning curve, but kind of people are sort of trying to get back into it. But you know, like I said, I do this. I've been doing this for uh, ten, over 10 years now. So... Um, no, I'm sorry, no, 14 years now, gosh. Uh, so, you know, two, two years off really isn't that big of a deal. And so, would you say for, and um, I'd, I'd like to talk to you about your, your research interests as well, but just one more question about organizing a conference. Um, I know that uh, organizing conferences, uh, I, I've talked to people like, for example, at Lakeland University, Cotisol, uh, other places, and Jalt National. Uh, what, do you, what would you say is that if you wanted to organize your own meeting, maybe just a discrete SIG meeting like this with just two rooms, um, what's the first thing you have to think about? Is it the location? Is it the publicity? Um, what would you, how would you recommend people go about it if they have this kind of passion to organize something hmm. well I mean if you've got the passion you've got the people you've got a topic then uh, all the specifics for how to do it in person and that's a big question because you know really not in this day and age there's no need to have to do it mm. uh, face to face just do it on zoom mm. uh, you can get a much broader audience you can get a lot more participants you can get people from all over the world uh, and it's cheaper <laughs> um, but if you want to do it in person, uh, you have the budget and, uh, or you have the space, um, then I would say for me, just personal opinion, I think having location really helps. Uh, this is right uh, you know, five minutes or, or so walk from Kyoto Station, mm. so uh, Campus Plaza Kyoto. Uh, it's a space that our, the Kyoto chapter has been using for over a decade. Um, and so it's, 
you know, the access is perfect. Uh, price for us is fairly reasonable. Um, and so once that's sorted, then the details for organization are really nothing, are, 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 that, that's, that can be your focus. Mm. You know, so if you ask it to be which you should choose first, I would say you, know, you want to have the topic, you want to have your basic speakers, have some idea for organization, but at the same time, you don't want to be searching around for some obscure um, con in the middle of nowhere <laughs> uh, that no one can get to, that it takes you know, two buses uh, to, to, to access. And, uh, you know, but um, that should not be your main concern, but if it's not a concern at all, then your event may not get as many people as it would otherwise um, but at the same time you know if you're if money is an issue like uh, for example a lot of universities will allow uh, um, instructors there to host events either for free or for very low price lower than say even a place like this um, and if that's all you can afford then do it you know uh, it's better to have an event with a uh, five, 10, 15, 20 people who are really interested in an event that's free and gets lots of people, but people are kind of, eh, about it, so. Uh, and before we started, you were saying that your, uh, your interest is not necessarily in listening, so what, what are your research interests? Yeah, well, for um, a chapter officer, you, if you know how it works, you have the special interest group, SIGs, and the chapters, and chapters are kind of geographically determined, so Kyoto chapter is kind of the, um, we have the Kyoto and Shiga Prefecture as kind of our catchment. Um, really, anyone in Japan can be a member of the Kyoto SIG, but that, that's the Kyoto chapter, but that's basically how it works. And so when we partner with SIGs, um, the chapter works to help support the SIG um, carry out the event. And that's, so that's what we do. I'm not saying that I'm not interested in research, in listening, and I'm not saying that listening isn't, isn't uh, an interest of, for me as a teacher, but my own research interests are rather different, and it's mainly in systemic functions and linguistics and multimodality. And will you be... <laughs> and, well, my final question is, uh, will you be joining us down in Fukuoka uh, in November and uh, oh, presenting there? Yeah, I'll be talking about a completely different topic there. Okay. Well, we look forward to seeing you down there again and also uh, a very well-organized event. And so whatever uh, assistance you've given to the SIG, I think it's, uh, you've pulled it off very well. Well, me personally, actually, I have to say, I personally have not done a lot. Our chapter, our chapter president, Gretchen Clark, has been the real mastermind at getting the um, logistics of this event uh, handled. Uh, but really, it goes out to the SIG. They've done a really good job. Uh, I'm just here to provide backup and support and, you know, be the timekeeper and things like that. So, Well, thank you very so, much for so your... Thank you, but the thanks are not due to me. Well, thank you very much for your time, and uh, I hope to speak to you again in the future. I hope to speak to you as well, because I do want to tell you more about multimodality. <laughs> so... So you find me here with my co-host of the podcast, Jonathan Schachter, and we're going to be presenting uh, the final presentation of the day. Could you tell us something about what we're going to be talking about? Yeah, saving best for last. Uh, so as, as everyone knows, we, we do a lot of interviews and sometimes we look for similar themes. And this particular presentation revolves around student silence. And I think... These are some of the beginning interviews that I did, starting with Seiko Harumi, uh, citation number one. And I also interviewed Jim King and Jim King's PhD student, 
Kate Mayer, um, Dat Bao, and I'm, oh, I miss, uh, John Wiltshire. Okay, so these were all sort of the first 35 episodes and they all revolved around student silence. And we looked at the interviews and we found some, some themes that emerged. Um, so this is something that, kudos to you, the, the idea of the podcast narrative. So this is, I think, the second or third paper that we've, we've uh, published. And uh, this one's all about student silence and hopefully what people can get out of the presentation is just kind of being aware of uh, cultural differences between how students view silence and also ways to think about silence in the classroom, which is, again, one of these things that is ubiquitous in Japanese classrooms, but you don't, you don't hear so many people talk about. So that's why it was kind of cool to find five researchers mm-hmm. in this series who dedicate their, their research interests to student silence. And so is it mainly in the area of what student silence is, how it manifests itself in the classroom, or how we can overcome it, or some combination of these three things? Yeah, so the interviews, as as people know, and you can check out our website, lostincitations.com, where we we start with, you know, the background of the guest, how they got involved in their research interest, and then how this can be applied to researching, teaching, if you're interested in writing, and these sorts of things. And so the theme kind of evolved. We broke it up into five uh, parts, and I'm, I'm not going to get into all five parts. People can uh, read the paper later on if, you, if you'd like. Maybe we can put a link to it. Um, but really, it was interesting how each person in the series came to researching silence. Okay, So some of them were silent as a kid. Okay, some of them, like Dat Bao, for example, he grew up in Vietnam. He was taught at a young age to be silent. Mm. And then as he took language classes in high school, uh, the teachers got angry at him. And so he had this sort of inner conflict. So, and there's someone like um, Seiko Harumi, who she did a lot of joint teaching with um, ALTs uh, early on in her career. And she was watching how students were responding to the, the, the ALTs, for example, from Canada or something. And she noticed this sort of disconnect between the students and the teacher. And, and, and for her, it was something, oh, I can sense what the students are thinking. That's what she said. I can sense what the students are thinking. I can see why they're behaving this way, but I can't explain it. So each person came from a different story, how they approach silence. And uh, so someone like John Wiltshire, he wrote this uh, chapter in a book um, which advises, uh, guides people how to teach English at Japanese universities. It's a really good book. And, and this chapter was breaking down the wall of silence. And he really talks about um, silent time, giving students time to prepare. Um, other guests in this ther- series more focused on cultural things, the idea that listening is a virtue, so we need to, all, all of these things. So um, it's just something that, and the other idea that something that Dat Bao talks a lot about is that silence isn't always negative. Um, And Kate Mayer talked about it as well. So some of us have this, especially those people that came from the Eikaiwa background, and Eikaiwa, for people that aren't from Japan, is these um, English conversation schools for profit. There's this sort of belief that, so if your manager walks by the classroom, it should be really lively and everyone's talking. Mm -hmm. And uh, Dat Bao pushes against that. Um, Kate Mayer pushes against that, where, no, we need processing time. And it doesn't... And the other, the other thing that Dat Bao talked about a lot is that just because a person has sort of an extroverted personality, it doesn't necessarily mean that person is going to do better in a speaking performance mm-hmm. task, which I thought was very interesting. Um, so anyway, I, don't, I think that was a, I, I talked around the question a bit, but um, yeah, lots of interesting things. And uh, so again, we looked at the, the interviews 
and we found these emerging themes, five emerging themes, and that's what we're going to talk about in today's presentation. Yeah, I think, and, and thank you for giving me um, some credit for coming up with the idea, but it's something that together we have, you know, really taken forward, and uh, I think this is a, a as we we mentioned in other presentations and podcasts before, it is becoming a legitimate form of qualitative data collection. Well, well, yeah, um, uh, Nick, who we just had lunch with, I'm not sure if you're going to interview him, um, he's actually a PhD student for Jim King, and he came up to me and he said, oh, Jim King actually recommended that uh, I listen to your podcast, and I've checked out some of these, these podcasts. So it is, it is kind of cool to say, oh, yeah, Jim King. Like, I know Jim King. Like, you know Jim King. We've both heard Jim King's voice. And uh, also I ran into uh, Jennifer Larson Hall, mm. who I think was like Citation 21. Mm -hmm. Never met her face to face. Mm -hmm. um, Whoa, Jennifer, what's up? Mm. Todd's here. Mm. Um, this, is a cool, this is a cool thing. And, and uh, for those of you that listened to this last, um, the last Man on the Street series, we were at Lakeland University. And at that, we were talking about another narrative, uh, the idea of can applied linguists do psychology research. So yeah, it's, it's really fun. To, to look at these uh, emerging narratives, write papers on them, uh, then come to the presentation and uh, share, share our ideas. So I hope people will be, I hope people stick around. Ours is the last, right. I was kind of joking with Todd that um, he's like, oh, you're the closer. And I said, yeah, but what if people leave in the eighth <laughs> inning? I, I don't, so I don't know who's winning this conference, but I hopefully people stick around to the end. Check yeah. it out. Okay, well, uh, if not, we will be the reason that they leave. <laughs> we'll play them off. That's right. Okay. All right. Yeah. Well, thank you very much, John, and I, I, I think it's going to go well. All right. Thanks, Chris. Okay. So as a follow-up to the conference, I'm speaking to uh, the organizer and head of the Listening SIG, Nahin Madabakis. And overall, how do you think it went? Um, we were really, really happy, first of all, that um, everyone was able to get together for a listening conference. Uh, I don't know how um, people find it when they go to other conferences, whether it be online or face-to-face, -face, in terms of trying to look for those listening-specific sessions. So when we decided to hold a listening conference, which was about maybe six to eight months ago now. Um, we thought about the different themes and how we could get people together to, to talk about listening. So that's why we didn't want just research or just teaching. We, we wanted a, a few themes and we were lucky enough um, that our lovely presenters sent in their abstracts and we were able to really, really define two different rooms. So um, we were really happy at the success of the conference that so we were able to have a research room and a quite practical room. So, so that was really, really exciting to have. And I think that people were able to go between the rooms, although there were two parallel sessions at the same time. And so we're hoping to have the same kind of themes in, in future events as well. And something that I learned from attending the conference is that uh, before you set it up, there wasn't a listening sync uh, in JALT. And this, was, uh, this has been something uh, uh, a project of yours and uh, how, well, I mean, you know, how satisfied were you or how proud were you that this managed to come together? It's kind of a, a personal mission of yours. I, I guess it has been. I've had a lot of support. I actually started the listening SIG when I was overseas. So I was finishing my PhD in New Zealand. 
And um, I'd been working in Japan maybe years and years before that. So I knew of JALT. And I happened to come over for the JALT conference in Nagoya in 2019. And at that conference, I was able to meet some people that were involved in listening. So some of our fellow officers. So Todd was part of that. And Stuart was part of that. And we were talking together and we were able to say, hey, yeah, we don't have a listening stick. It's part of Jout. Um, let's try and put one together. So the whole process there took about a year and Jout themselves were very, very helpful and put me in touch with the, the right people. So our, um, our listening stake liaise grant Osterman was really helpful in terms of the process and getting it together, but it took about a year. Mm. And in that time, we have to see who is interested in joining the SIG. So it was a good time to see if there was any interest. Um, so in, in relation to getting that off the ground and then being able to hold a, a listening only conference um, with our kind mates at Kyoto chapter, um, that was that was quite a, a personal and proud moment of mine, I guess. Yes. <laughs> and do you think going forward, I'm, I'm assuming you're going to make this a, a yearly uh, event, um, given the trajectory of the listening SIG, do you think you're going to be having uh, expanding, having more rooms next year, being able to perhaps incorporate a variety of themes? I mean, uh, what, what's your sales pitch to people who might be listening to this and interested in joining your group? So I, I think even if listening is not your first love, obviously it is a, a very big part of what we have to teach in syllabi and being one of the four skills, you're gonna to have to come across it somehow. So what we do is we, we try to um, make listening digestible, accessible. And so we always try to have a practical element. Of course, there is a, a huge research side to it as well. So we did like the feedback that we received this year in terms of it was very clear whether you were interested in the research or just, you know, you wanted teaching ideas. So, so we're hoping to, to continue with those kind of themes. Um, hopefully we'll get a lot more interest as well next year. So if we, if we do have the scope and we do have the flexibility, we can hopefully expand to other rooms. Um, and, you know, be able to kind of offer that practical, accessible factor that, you know, our, our Jout SIG foundation is built on. So the listening SIG hopes to kind of make um, listening, you know, available for people because it is quite a complex and difficult skill. Um, so we're hoping to kind of break down some of those theories and, and help teachers bring those to their classrooms. Yeah, uh, uh, anyone who knows me knows that every time I go to a JALT conference, like the JALT International Conference, the main conference, I always say, that's the last time, I'm not going back there. Like, but anytime I go to a SIG or, for example, the listening SIG or I go to PANSIG, I always come away more inspired because I think it, it's that, that focus that gives people um, the inspiration. So as a, as a final question, um, what was it about or what is it about listening that appeals to you as uh, a skill that needs focus? I think that I can empathize with a lot of teachers that when we go into our classrooms or we're just starting up a semester, we do feel like, how am I going to approach this? Um, so that's how I got interested in listening myself. It, it, it wasn't something I knew how to teach. I wasn't an expert on it. And I didn't know what to do in the classroom. And 
I think everyone is familiar with the site that as soon as you say to a student, let's do some listening, then you know that's time for them to take out their phones or fall asleep. So I wanted to see what I could do to help them. And there was obviously a reason why a majority of students were, were doing that. So I wanted to find out the reasons why and, and try to help them. And um, so it, it's a slow progress and a slow, slow process in the actual classroom. So you are trying to get them to kind of come round to their way of thinking. A lot of listening is, okay, you know, you, you've got to find out what the errors are, what the problems are first before you can actually deal with them. And that's always an uphill struggle with students. So I hope that between um, sharing all of our teaching ideas, thinking about what we have found in research, being able to think about newer ways to approach those problems that, that can help people, not, not only within the SIG, but also um, in their classrooms as well. And hopefully you can meet a lot of um, new people and like-minded people along the way as well. Well, um, I can say from my experience, I certainly did. And thank you very much for putting together uh, the event and also for allowing myself and Jonathan to present at it. So um, uh, I think, uh, well, I hope uh, next year, um, if it's if it goes ahead, then I think we, we'd like to be there too. So thank you very much for all of your efforts and thank you for uh, your time today, uh, Naheen, and also for you know expanding the the outreach of JALT. I'm sure that the that there are a lot of people that are very happy that you've done that. Thank you, and thank you for inviting us, inviting us on. And um, yeah, let, let's um, meet up and talk more about listening sometime. Excellent. Thank you very much. If you'd like to contact the show, the best place to find out about us is our website, lostincitations.com. Here you can learn more about the background to this project and how you can get involved. Our hope is to help academics, educators, and online content producers get in contact with each other. Our email address is lostincitations at gmail.com. We also have Facebook and LinkedIn pages. Please rate and comment on the sites you use to download your podcasts. It helps us reach more potential listeners. But probably the most helpful thing you can do is, if you like our content, recommend it to a friend and let them know what we're trying to do. Thank you very much.